0: 5am the 18th of November 2011. A fire breaks out at the Quakers Hill nursing home 40 kilometres west of Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. 14 of the 81 residents of the home would die in the fire or in the period soon after. Roger Kingsley-Dean, a registered nurse employed at the home, would ultimately plead guilty to and was convicted in respect of 11 Counts of Murder by Way of Reckless Indifference to Human Life. On this episode, we'll find out what went wrong and how this horrific event could have been avoided. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a jet chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So before we get into the events of the 18th of November 2011, let's have a look at the background of Roger Dean and how he came to be employed at the Quakers Hill Nursing Home. Now a lot of this will be directly from the murder trial and the coroner's report. He was born in 1976 in Vietnam and was brought to Australia as an infant by his mother together with three siblings as refugees. His father reportedly died whilst attempting to flee at a later time. He recognised he was gay at an early age. He was often bullied at school and his sexual orientation seemed to be the cause of the difficulty, difficult relationship he had with his mother. He had very little contact with his siblings throughout his life. Even with these difficulties, he was able to graduate in 1996 from the University of Sydney, with a Bachelor of Nursing degree. He worked with St George Hospital and Community Health Services in the areas of mental health and drug and alcohol rehabilitation between 2002 and 2007. In April 2007, he had a dispute with his supervisor, Tracy Sheehan, over notes he had made on a patient's file. Dean became upset over the matter, saying she was condescending and unfair. Later, Miss Sheen found a car damaged in the work car park with paint splashed over it and screws in the tyres. Of course, she suspected Dean as the culprit and her manager, Joanna Townley, observed white marks on his desk that appeared similar to the paint found on a car. An investigation was announced, but Dean resigned soon afterwards. He would later admit to throwing the paint on the car during a psychiatric report for the court that was prepared for his sentencing. Dean commenced studying for a Bachelor of Laws degree in 2004 at the Macquarie University and was one unit short of completing that course at the time of the fire. In September 2005, while still working at St George Hospital, he commenced casual work with the St John of God Hospital. In July 2007, after he resigned from the St George Hospital and Community Health Services, he was appointed to a permanent registered nurse position at the St John of God Hospital, working primarily night shifts. I've always said that people, including myself, have to be a bit crazy when they do afternoon or graveyard shifts for work, but I digress. Let's get a bit more background on this Dean character. On the 18th of June 2011, Dean was found drug affected at work at St John of God Hospital. According to St John of God Hospital records, a patient, who was also a cop, found Dean in the medication room. After the fire, this patient reported to police that Dean had appeared significantly drug affected and that he had been unable to administer her medication properly or even to remember what her medication was, despite it being written down in front of him. His clothing had appeared dishevelled. He had had spittle or white froth in the corners of his mouth, was talking slowly, had slurred speech and appeared uncoordinated. She notified other staff. The after-hours manager, Miss Karen Bailey, then spoke to Dean in response to the notification. She described him as appearing at the time to be ataxic and sedated and that she said that he had been slurring his speech. She suspended him from duty immediately and sent him home. Miss Bailey insisted that he not drive himself home. On the 21st of June 2011, Dean was interviewed by Mr Paul Dyer, the Director of Nursing for the hospital, and Kathy Bond, the nurse unit manager. Dean advised them that he had bipolar disorder, his GP had changed his antidepressant medication, it had adversely affected him on the day in question and that he had since seen his GP and had his medication regime changed. He also told Miss Bailey that he had been seeing a clinical psychologist fortnightly for a major depressive illness. Mr Dyer requested a letter from Dean's GP, Dr Assar, to confirm he was fit to return to work and to cut a long story short, the letter asserted that Dean was stable and fit to resume his duties as a registered nurse. However, in his statement, Dr Assar said that he had treated Dean for anxiety and panic disorders for which antidepressant and sleeping medications were prescribed. He made no mention in his statement or his consultation notes of Dean suffering from bipolar disorder. There was no evidence that Dean ever underwent a specialist mental health assessment or treatment, much less that he was ever formally diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Dean had been prescribed lovol Seroquel and a drug that reduces nausea and vomiting, Imavane. So Dean was able to get back to work basically by convincing everyone that it was changes to his prescribed meds that caused him to act the way he did on that night. It appears that management at the St John and God Hospital considered that Dean had a compromised ability to communicate and manage relationships with others. With patient safety in mind, Mr Dyer advised Dean that he was be taken off night shift and moved to day duty to ensure that he received appropriate supervision. Three days later he resigned. Already it looks like Dean likes being on shifts where there is generally skeleton staff, either to not have to interact with others as much or maybe to be able to get up to no good with less chance of being busted. None of the information related to his circumstances or termination of employment was ever communicated to anyone at the Quakers Hill Nursing Home nor did anyone at Quakers Hill Nursing Home ever make inquiries with the St John of God Hospital concerning his reasons for resigning or his performance as a nurse there. This will become one of the events in the chain that may have prevented the fire ever occurring. In September 2011, Dean was living with his partner Dean French who owned a cheesecake shop in Quakers Hill. Dean visited the Quakers Hill nursing home which had a capacity for up to 100 aged care residents asking if they had any positions available. They needed a registered nurse, especially one that could do night shift. Dean submitted his resume on or around September the 6th along with a registration form and other documents. As well as his resume he also provided a number of written references from former employees that dated back to 1998 and 2000. Curiously and most important is that the only employment listed from 9th of August 2007 to current was work at the Cheesecake Shop in Kellyville. The most recent nursing experience listed was at the St George Public Hospital, ending on the 6th of July 2007. So he conveniently left out his work at the St John of God Hospital, where it had been the issue of being drug-affected at work. The only aged care experience identified was for approximately two years in 2002 to 2004. So the only referees listed were from from his boyfriend, the Cheesecake Guy, one from St Vincent's Hospital, where he only worked a few months between the 22nd of May and the 11th of August, 1997. Three letters of reference from St George Hospital were dated 1998, 1999 and 2000, and two from a Mrs Bovey of the Nightingale Nursing Bureau United were dated 1998 and 1999. So the most recent written reference in regards to nursing related to the year 2000, 11 years prior to his proposed employment at the nursing home and none of the referees had worked with him after 2007. Now not only was his resume clearly out of date, the management of Quakers Hill Nursing Home failed to contact any of the referees or contact any of his previous employers. They only checked he was still a registered nurse and after one interview he got the job and rostered onto the night shift as a permanent part-time registered nurse level 1, with shifts on Wednesday and Thursday nights and a Saturday morning shift. There was an employee engagement checklist which included obtaining a police check but it did not include checking references. This checklist was completed on the 7th of September 2011. The home's protocols also included a requirement that nurses being considered for employment undergo a medical screen. In Dean's case, however, no pre-employment medical screening took place. Dean attended in-service staff training at the Quakers Hill Nursing Home on the 6th of September 2011. That training included sessions on fire safety. Employment records show that Dean commenced working night shift at Quakers Hill Nursing Home on the 13th of September 2011. On night shift, there was only one registered nurse on duty. This meant that Dean would effectively be unsupervised during his shift and therefore he would be the only one with a key to the treatment room where Schedule 8 drugs were kept and the only one with a key to the Schedule 8 drugs cabinet. He could lock the door behind him, knowing that no one could come in. Schedule 8 drugs and poisons, otherwise known as controlled drugs, are substances and preparations for the therapeutic use which have high potential for abuse and addiction. It's an Australian standard, so this guy has got this job, with no one really checking him out properly, and immediately is left with the keys to the drug cabinet. He was placed on a three-month probationary period. Now we get to the night of the 16th and morning of the 17th, November 2001, the night before the fire. Dean was rostered on with four other AINs, or assistants in nursing, and during that shift, all the AINs noticed Dean spending time in the treatment room on his own often with the door closed. This stood out as it was unusual for a registered nurse to spend time in that room on his or her own especially with the door shut. Towards the end of the shift Miss Darley one of the AINs entered the treatment room whilst Dean was there. She observed blister packs on the trolley in the room and that clear sticky tape had been wrapped around one of the packs. Dean told her that nurses had ripped the packets and that he had to tape them up. A camera was positioned outside the treatment room door and captured people entering and exiting that room. A subsequent review of CCTV showed that Dean entered the treatment room on 36 occasions and spent in total over two hours of his shift in there that night. Nursing homes are required by law to keep a register of drugs of addiction and to store and allow access to them only under controlled conditions. Entries must be made in the register on the day on which a person receives, supplies or administers a drug of addiction. That that entry must be dated and signed by the person who made it and countersigned by a witness. The nursing home had two blue drug register books which were stored in the Schedule 8 Cabinet. Now, the nursing home required that a daily audit of Schedule Eight drugs be performed at 8 p.m. each day, carried out by a registered nurse. Miss Jeanette Mitchell, R.N., and Miss Deepa Kunwar, A.I.N., commenced the audit about 7:35 p.m. on the 17th of November, 2011. Miss Mitchell discovered that the counts for Endone did not tally with the numbers listed against the patient's name and that Endone tablets were missing from the blister packs and boxes. Endone is a narcotic like morphine, heroin and codeine. Miss Mitchell then contacted the registered nurse who performed the audit the night before and found that nothing out of the ordinary was detected in that audit. She also contacted the registered nurse on duty during the day and found that no Endone was administered during the morning shift. Miss Mitchell then left a message for facility manager Susanna Stofan, advising her of the discrepancy. Miss Mitchell then contacted the facility's clinical supervisor, Lunetta Mateo, and told her a lot of Endome was missing. In fact, 237 tablets were unaccounted for. Miss Mitchell advised her that Dean had been the night registered nurse the night before. Miss Mateo attended at about 8:30 p.m. and did a recount with Miss Mitchell. In total, 237 tablets of Endone and one tablet of Capanol, both opioid medications, were found to be missing. In the nine years she had worked at the nursing home, Miss Mateo had never before had medications go missing. So Miss Mateo called back facilities manager Stofan. And Stofan told her that she'd left a message for her superior, Mr. Robert Johnson. They both su- suspected Dean and decided to call police, but not inform them that they had a suspect. As the night shift started to report for work around 10:15 p.m., which included staff that had worked the night before, Miss Mateo asked them if anything out of the ordinary occurred the night before. One of the nurses. Miss Thompson, AIN, stated that Dean had gone into the treatment room, unlocked himself inside, and stayed there most of the night. mister Dean had also woken a resident, Miss Thelma Hodgson Bud, to administer her endone after four AM. It was unusual to wake a patient to administer medication, and it was not clear that she had requested her pain relief. Another nurse, Miss Gretel, Told Miss Mateo that during the evening she had at one point been just outside the treatment room and heard what she described were blister packets popping coming from inside the treatment room. Miss Gradle also told her that she was scared of Roger and about a white lining that he would get in the corner of his mouth, which is what he had when drug affected earlier at the St. John of God Hospital in 2011. Miss Mateo told some of the staff not to tell Dean anything when he arrived. However, not all of them were told this and Dean turned up to work at 10.30pm. Miss Kunwa was an agency nurse who was working for that night. She had been asked to stay on after the day shift ended to await the arrival of police. It appears she was unaware of Miss Mateo's instruction not to inform Dean about the missing medication. Miss Kunwa spoke to Dean and told him what had happened and showed him the written report about the missing drugs. This tipped off Dean who must have started to panic and tried to think up a way to cover his tracks. So the cops turn up at 12.04am and they're led in by Dean. Miss Mateo spoke to them and they checked out the Schedule 8 cabinet and noted that there was no forced entry. Miss Mateo spoke to them in general terms about who would have access to the cabinet but didn't mention Dean as the main suspect. The police were then called away on another matter and would call if they were unable to attend later. After the police left, Miss Mateo and Miss Mitchell bagged up the open blister packs for future fingerprinting and checked out the CCTV which showed Dean entering the treatment room several times the night before, and at one stage he exited with what looked like something under his arm. Dean now seemed anxious, conversing with another nurse saying, they think it was me, and constantly asking when they, Miss Mitchell and Miss Mateo, were going home. Miss Mitchell went home at 2.15am, and at 2.30am Miss Mateo called police to see where they were. She told police that she viewed the CCTV footage and that the man seen in the footage was working that night and that she was scared to leave the staff alone with him. She was told by police that they were busy on more urgent matters. Miss Mateo then called her manager, Miss Stofan, and updated her on what was happening. Stofan told her to go home and they would deal with it in the morning. Miss Mateo asked if she should send Dean home as the police were not going to arrest him that night and her staff were scared. Stofan replied that they're old enough to look after themselves. Miss Mateo then decided to go home even though the staff begged her to stay. She also felt helpless in having to hand over the key to the open Schedule 8 cabinet. The police called back at 4.50am and were told the person of interest for the theft was on shift, but they decided not to attend until the next day when management was available. Okay, so now we get up to the events that led to the fire. At around 4.35am, Dean approached the B-wing nurses and asked them to go for a break and get off the floor. They refused, and so Dee went to A-wing, and asked those nurses to go for a break, in which they did. At about 4.51am, Dean made his way to the A2 wing, Ward 19, which was unoccupied. He then set fire to a bed with a cigarette lighter he had stolen earlier from one of the nurses. At 4.53am, Dean is captured on CCTV, walking back to the foyer of A wing, and as he did so, the fire indicator panel began to flash and all fire doors automatically closed. The fire alarm sounded as well. When the primary fire safety officer who was Miss Stofan was not present, it fell to the registered nurse on duty, in this case Mr. Dean, to go to the fire indicator panel and check the location of the fire alarm, then relay this information to all staff and call 000 the emergency number he or she was also required to coordinate staff to deal with the emergency. The activation of the alarm caused electronic notifications to be sent to Chubb Security and to two fire stations. Although these are treated seriously, they are often false alarms and so only one fire truck from each of the two fire stations attended. At around 5 a.m., Dean entered Ward 3 of the A1 wing. Here he assisted one resident to go to the toilet and then set her bed alight. There were three other residents in the room and Dean then left the room leaving the door open. Now at this time some of the nurses checked the fire panel which showed the location of the alarm. They answered a call from Chubb Security and then they saw smoke coming from Ward 19. At 4.59am the first fire truck arrived. It is unclear as to whether they inspected the fire panel which may have alerted them to the second fire as the fire panel records were unable to be retrieved after the fire. Evacuation of the residents commenced. Firefighters were then directed to A2 wing Ward 19 to extinguish the fire. Firefighters then noticed smoke coming from A1 wing and shortly after, a second alarm, changing the designation from Automatic Fire Alarm, AFA, to Structure Fire. Fire trucks from four other fire stations were now deployed. At 5.03am, Dean is captured on CCTV, entering the front fire from the direction of A1 Wing. At around 5.04am, the fire in Ward 19 was extinguished, and windows opened to ventilate the room. When the other fire trucks arrived, they were directed to A1 Wing to attack the fire and evacuate residents. Meanwhile, firefighters were confronted by dense smoke down to a floor level and could hear moaning and coughing from the elderly trapped residents of the ward. The heat was so intense that firefighters had to drop to their knees as it was too hot to stand even though they were wearing heavy firefighting gear. They used a thermal camera to try and locate the seat of the fire, but the heat was so great in the wing that the camera could not differentiate the seat of the fire from other hot areas. They decided to concentrate on evacuating residents and they commenced wheeling out beds and in some cases dragging out residents along the floor wrapped in bedding. They also tried to cool the gases in the area by spraying water from the fire hose. At 5.08am, the fire flared up through Ward 3 windows into the eaves of the building. Police were now on scene and assisted with the evacuation. Motorists were also flagged down to help with the evacuation. At around 5.15am, noise from A1 Wing's roof indicated that the structure was about to collapse. Soon after, the roof partially collapsed. At 5.15am, the fire was escalated to a third alarm, which brought additional resources from four more fire stations. Soon after, a fireball burst into the roof of A1 wing, indicating that the roof was collapsing. At this time, no one was actively fighting the fire in Ward 3. At 5.26am, After having troubles with a stuck hose it took firefighters about another five minutes to extinguish the blaze. Evacuations from the rear door of A1 wing was hampered by a 90 degree turn on the ramp that had handrails which made it impossible to wheel beds around. Other issues with wheeling beds out was falling debris and fire hoses obstructing the wheels. At 5.36 a fifth alarm and then a sixth alarm was issued. However, by, the, by this time, the fire was mainly under control. So from the time the first fire is lit and the blaze is under control is only about 50 minutes. A triage area was established outside on the grounds and when Police Inspector Ken Shack Evans arrived at about 6am, there were patients scattered everywhere and approximately 75 police, 100 firefighters and 100 ambulance personnel at the scene. Patients were then transported to six different hospitals and some of the less affected residents were taken to the Uniting Church by bus. As a result of that fire, three people died at the scene and a further eight died in hospital after suffering the effects of burns and or smoke inhalation. Eight people seriously injured from burns and/or smoke inhalation survived the event. Fire and Rescue New South Wales would eventually carry out tests with a reconstructed room. Basically, they were able to show how the fire spread, and found it got to approximately one thousand and seventy degrees Celsius, or one thousand nine hundred and fifty-eight degrees Fahrenheit. They conducted another test, but this time with a sprinkler system installed. They found that the fire didn't spread and caused minor smoke and heat damage to the room, which reached a maximum of 92 degrees centigrade or 198 degrees Fahrenheit. So the installation of a sprinkler system in the nursing home may have made a huge difference to the events that unfolded. So let's have a look at the police investigations of Dean as he was already under suspicion for the theft of drugs from the nursing home and now there was a fire to interview him about. Police were able to view CCTV which shows Dean exiting A1 wing at about 5.03am just after the fire alarm had gone off and he grabbed his yellow bag from the nurse's station. You can view most of the CCTV footage on YouTube and you will see Dean over the next few minutes awkwardly helping residents to evacuate while still trying to keep his yellow bag over his shoulder. By 5.07am, he leaves the building and assists in helping patients outside. In the next half hour or so, Dean is seen on CCTV trying to get back into the building but is rebuffed by the firefighters and police. Eventually, at 6.08am, he succeeded in gaining entry by telling firefighters he had to get inside to get the drug books. He was escorted to the room where he placed the two drug registers into his yellow bag and he left the nursing home on foot. In fact, as he leaves, he's interviewed on camera by a television reporter. Here's an audio clip. You can find the video on YouTube. I fire and I just quickly just did what I can, get everyone out and the smoke is just overwhelming but you know we got a lot of people out so that's the main thing. There's still probably a few people and the people are trying their best to get everyone out at the moment. Yeah. He then made his way to his home on foot. According to Mr. French his partner Dean arrived home about 6.30am. Once home he ripped up the drug registers and shortly afterwards he told Mr. French that he had to return to the nursing home. Mr. French offered to drive him. On the way, they stopped at Mr. French's shop where Dean dumped a plastic shopping bag containing the remnants of the drug registers into the cheesecake shop's bin. Mr. French then dropped Dean at the nursing home where he apparently stayed all morning until he was taken at about noon to Mount Druitt Hospital for treatment for possible smoke inhalation. Police attended the hospital at about 2pm and asked him to attend Mount Druitt Police Station to make a statement. He did so. The police took a type statement in which Dean provided a false or misleading account about his duties and activities throughout the night. That evening, however, while a forensic procedure was being carried out, Mr Dean was informed by police that he was a suspect. He then told police that he had left something out of his statement concerning the fire. Dean admitted to police that he had lit the fires and that he had used one of the nurse's cigarette lighters to do so. He did not think either of the fires would burn out of control and he made no attempt to extinguish them. During the interview, Dean again admitted to lighting the two fires but he maintained his denial of the theft of the medication. When asked why he'd lit the fires, he responded, I'm just corrupted with evil thoughts that made me do that, and that Satan's saying to me that it's the right thing to do. Here's an audio clip. I mean, you won't believe it, but it was like... Satan saying to me that it's the right thing to do. I assumed that it would be a small fire. I didn't expect it to be big. On the 21st of November 2011, police executed a search warrant on Mr Dean's home. Numerous items were seized, including two white canisters labelled Roger's prescribed medication, that were found to contain Endone tablets. Boxes of Endone tablets, some empty. A blister packet of MS Conten containing two tablets. Xanax tablets. 20 prescriptions in the name of Roger Dean. One clear box of various blister packets of tablets labelled Roger's prescription medications. In total, 203 whole Endone tablets. 28 part endone tablets and one capanol ta- uh, capsule were recovered. Dean will be charged with 11 counts of murder and eight counts of recklessly causing grievous bodily harm. On the 27th of May 2013, Dean would plead guilty to all charges. This prevented the need for a long and complex trial. Judge Megan Latham of the New South Wales Supreme Court said Dean's crimes were in the worst category but said he had shown some remorse to friends and psychiatrists. The pain and terror suffered by all the victims must have been horrific, she said. A worse fate is difficult to imagine. He was sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. His file marked, ''Never to be released.'' In life, we will all come across dickheads like Roger Dean. Dean was addicted to meds. His stupid actions in trying to cover up his drug theft from work caused the deaths and serious injury to some of the most vulnerable people, the elderly. They were unable to get out of their beds when faced with the fire. What an unimaginable circumstance to find oneself in. Also, The fact that he was given the job in the first place is just mystifying. His references were years old and weren't even checked by management. It looks like they were so desperate to fill the position, they decided not to have any due diligence in employing him. If they had investigated him at all, they would have found that he'd been drug affected at a previous employer. Remember the white shit in the corner of his mouth? Yes, Staff had noticed that as well while he was on duty at Quakers Hill. The staff were also ignored by management when they told him they were scared to be on shift with him. On the night of the fires, it was known by management that Dean was most likely the one that stole drugs from the treatment room and even though police were called, they purposely declined to tell them the suspect was on shift at the time. They didn't send him home either as they would have had to get another registered nurse to fill his shift. It was easier to all go home and sleep and deal with the situation in the morning. There were issues with the design of the building in regards to evacuating the beds from the rear doors because the ramp wouldn't allow the wheelie beds to go around the corner. The place didn't require sprinkler systems to be installed, but thanks to the coroner's report, This is now mandatory in government registered nursing homes. There was only one fire hydrant which made it hard for the fire crews to get access to the seat of the fire. So it wasn't just Dean being a dickhead that caused the deaths of all these people. It was government regulations, incompetent and lazy management and poor design of the building's safety, access and fire control. So that's enough about that dickhead. Let me tell you a little about the victims. Reginald Green Mr Green was born in 1924 and was married for 62 years. He and his wife Nola raised two children. At the time of his death, he had been suffering dementia for some time. His family visited him regularly. He was survived by Mrs Green and their two children. Joan Joy Miss Joy was born in England in 1932. She emigrated to Australia in 1969. She suffered kidney failure and needed regular dialysis treatment. She was survived by her three children. Esther Newman. Miss Newman was born in 1909 and had had her 102nd birthday two days before the fire. She suffered arthritis and found it difficult to walk. Her eyesight and hearing had failed and she was also inflicted with dementia. She was survived by her son. Ella Wood. Miss Wood was born in 1913 and married in 1939. She and her husband had one child. She was widowed in 2008. She was a frail but relatively healthy 97-year-old woman. She saw her family regularly. Dorothy Wu. Miss Wu was 85 years old at the time of her death. She had suffered Alzheimer's disease since about 2005. Her husband died some years before. She was survived by her two sisters and two brothers. Urbana Alipio. Miss Alipio was born in 1925 in the Philippines and emigrated to Australia in 1994. She had three children and a number of grandchildren. If many elderly Australians lived hard lives, Filipinos who lived through the Second World War and the Japanese occupation of their country had harsher crosses to bear. She must have been a resilient woman to have survived that experience and to have brought up her children in the aftermath of the war. The family is very close and grieves for her. Doris Mercy Beck Miss Beck was 96 when she died. She'd brought up five children during the Depression and always worked hard. Life treated her hard in some respects. She was widowed at 48 and never remarried. She suffered breast cancer, but her family which expanded over the years to include 13 grandchildren, 28 grandchildren and 24 great-great-grandchildren, was central in her life. Her family described her as a fighter until her last day with a happy and positive spirit. Lola Joyce Bennett Miss Bennett was born in 1925 and was married for 31 years, raising two children. She was widowed in 1975. She grew up up on a farm and during the Second World War was a member of the Land Army. Her marriage was a hard-working but happy one, with two children being born to her. The whole family participated in working in the banana plantation they owned. Life for her was not all work. She loved dancing and played the organ. She was a woman whom her family remembers as strong industrious but also generous-hearted and fun. She too is much missed. Emanuela Kachia. Miss Kachia was described by her family as a loving wife, a caring mother, and a gentle grandmother who meant the world to everyone around her. She was born in Malta in 1935. She emigrated to Australia in 1956 with her parents and her three siblings. She married and raised five children, but was later widowed. She loved family gatherings and trips to the Blue Mountains and La Perouse, especially with her extended family. Her death has been an enormous blow to the whole family. Caesar Galea Mr Galea's family described him as a strong and proud man, devoted to his family and who adored his grandchildren. He had been married for about 62 years before he entered the nursing home, a blow to the whole family. He was born in Alexandria, Egypt, in a Catholic family of Maltese descent. He became a skilled leather worker in Egypt before emigrating to Australia after the Second World War. For 20 years, he worked as a special constable with the New South Wales Police Force. He was a keen cook and enjoyed fishing, growing vegetables, greyhound and trotting races but most of all his large extended family who loved him greatly and miss him very much. Alma Smith. Miss Smith was 73 at the time of the fire. She was born in the country but lost a mother at the age of two. Her childhood was difficult as her father was away from home for work a great deal and she was sent to boarding school at age 11. Like many young people of her generation, life was no easy journey. Her first marriage ended tragically in a car crash and in later life she became too ill to live at home. Her family described her as a woman who sacrificed herself to others and who refused to be a burden on the family. But also a person who tried to remain positive for them as she aged and became more frail. Dorothy Sterling. Miss Sterling was born in 1931, was a talented seamstress, making dresses and wedding gowns during her working life. She had two sons, five grandchildren, 13 great-grandchildren and one great-great-grandchild. Although she was not German, she was nicknamed Oma, or Granny, by the family. She was a warm, affectionate and generous matriarch within the family, and is much missed. Nilted Valke. Miss Valke was born in Holland and married in nineteen forty six. She had three children. The family emigrated to Australia in nineteen fifty-four for opportunity for the children and better weather. In nineteen eighty seven she was widowed. She was a talented soprano who sang in choirs in both Holland and Australia And even in her old age, her love of music and singing remained undiminished. She was an intelligent woman who became known at Quakers Hill Nursing Home as the Trivia Queen. Her family was at the heart of her life and she is much missed by them. Verna Wiebeck Miss Wiebeck, like so many of the victims of this fire, was born into tough times and circumstances. She was born in 1928 one of 11 children. Her father had been a soldier and the family's military connection remained strong. Her grandson, Michael, recently serving in Afghanistan with the Australian Army. She was a resilient woman, used to working hard in hard times, perhaps first developing such strength as a shearer's cook and later working in a nursing home. Her strength enabled her to survive a bout of cancer when one of her children's son was only 18 months old. She was mother to five children and grandmother and great-grandmother to a large extended family, all whom admired and loved her. So true Chrome Islanders, I would like to give a special shout out to Allie, Nancy, Nina, Lisa, Bane, Pod Team, Jordan Lemons, Mike Morford, Brooke, and all my other followers. We've reached 100 plus on Twitter. Remember, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook and places such as Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Podbean and the like and especially iTunes where you can leave a review if you like. Also, if you go to the website truecrimeisland.com, you can download or stream episodes from the episode page. There's also links to everything there as well as the RSS feed details on the contact page you can even send me an email cambo at truecrimeisland.com so don't forget to delete your browser history this has been your host cambo signing off from the true crime island another true crime podcast